I've been involved in automating a, a very large variety of parts from, from printers, uh, calculators, cell phones, fuel injectors, a variety of auto components, lithium ion batteries, hand tools. Pretty much when people say made in America, there's often robots somewhere in the assembly process. Hello and welcome to Supply Chain Stories. My name is Nathan Cunningham. Today's episode is brought to you by Precision Analytics. If your company does five to a hundred million dollars in sales, you could benefit from advanced analytics. Visit www.precisionanalyticsco.com. Mention this podcast and get 20% off your first month's service. Today's guest is Everett Phillips, a 27-year veteran in procurement, as well as advanced robotics and automation. Let's dig in. So, so my early career was involved in developing automation systems. And those automated systems often depended upon the supply chain, the bill of materials being correctly presented, conforming. So imagine a cell phone. The bill of material for a cell phone would be something like the screen, the glass, the computer, the camera, the enclosure, the processor, etc. right? And then within that bill of material, there's thousands of components that comprise the one big assembly. The bill of materials has to be presented to the robot somehow for assembly. Uh, you use different methods of presenting the parts. And the presentation and the conformance of the part will determine whether an automated system can function or not. So the supply chain plays a role because the quality of the parts arriving, the color, the presentation, the measurements that are critical, uh, if those things aren't conforming, then it's possible that the vision system of the robot or the end effector or the feeding mechanism will jam or not recognize the part. So Everett is really laying the foundation of starting a business that will allow him to assist in the manufacturing and the automation of various assemblies and components that he struggled with in early on in his career. And then um, I decided to start a company with a, a partner of mine. And as we looked at our assets of experience and relationships, uh, we realized that this issue of getting high quality parts made and delivered to assembly lines was a niche that, that we had the relationships and the knowledge to, uh, to pursue. So we, we started a, a supply chain company and uh, called, uh, at the time, China Manufacturing Network, but we, we reserved the name Global Manufacturing Network because we realized uh, this was in 2003, China was hot, but you know nothing stays hot forever. We would have to start sourcing from other countries eventually. High precision, high value machines, parts, and metal or plastic was a, a primary area. And that was because uh, it's the easiest way for a supplier to develop a relationship. You know, when you're doing molded parts, you have to pay for mold, which requires some trust. 
and you know it's uh, machine parts you give someone a drawing you make a first article and then if they like the first article you can move ahead and there's a little risk involved with that and so that's 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 how we started a first article is an inspection where the supplier of a part will send in one, two, maybe five samples, ten samples, something something low volume. And the purpose is to verify that the supplier has the technical capabilities to make the part to the specifications required. But we found, you know, if it was 10,000 or 100,000 a month, then there was a lot of competition because everybody thought that was sexy business. Um, and... You know, if you're making one a month or ten a month, then really local machine shops and local businesses were, were competitive by the time you added in logistics costs. So, so the sweet spot was that 100 to 5,000 parts per month. And what was interesting, what I found in this business of, of being a supplier, we ended up really evolving into the niche of being a supplier of um, basically vendor managed inventory of custom parts. And there were companies involved, they were they're doing um, vendor managed inventory of parts that are you know, standardized, right? Like bolts and nuts and screws, because you could always move the parts from one of your customers to another customer. But we were doing vendor managed inventory of custom parts. So we had to be careful because the parts could only be used by the customer that we were supplying them to. So we would get an agreement to make a certain number of quantity you know, of parts in advance um, and then keep uh, some inventory in our facility that would be a buffer. And then we would only deliver what they needed Kanban style or JIT just in time style to their assembly line. Kanban is a lean methodology and JIT stands for just in time. Basically, these two terms mean that Everett and his company will deliver products to their customers without the customers having to hold the inventory first. I then tried to get a good grasp from Everett about what his biggest challenge was. The very first purchase order. You know, I was very lucky because I had some friends uh, through networking who understood what my partner and I were doing. One of them, uh, her name was Charlotte, was a general manager of a company that, that had a manufacturing line. And she introduced us to her buyer. And because she knew us from before as executives, she trusted what we were going to be capable of doing. But uh, it was refreshing to go to a place where they knew it was the first purchase order. So I didn't have to lie, right? You know, I didn't have to say I've done it before. We, you know, it was very simple parts. You know, they were only a couple of cents each. You know, we treated them like they were pieces of gold. And um, it started the relationship. And, and then what was magic about that is everybody else I talked with, I could say, I've done it already. I could look someone in the eye and say, yes, you know, my other customer is satisfied. You know, it's uh, the last purchase order and the shipment and the quality was good. 
obviously running a startup and getting traction with customers is no easy task. I tried to figure out what on an ongoing basis was the most challenging part of delivering precision machine parts to customers. The hardest part on machine parts is anodizing, right? Plating, plating and anodizing is a terrifying thing. So we would sort, remake, Sometimes, sometimes we would, you know, have to make the part more than once, or we'd have to sort bad parts out, or we find some parts had a burr, and we'd have to inspect all the burrs out. So what our customer got was perfect and conforming. So, so back to your question of disasters. Usually, what happens is it's that last mile. We work very hard for managing the quality of the uh, of the part and we have a tight deadline, and then we go to the plating house, and then the plating house ruins the parts. What I learned to do under those circumstances was not plate all the parts simultaneously, or to split the production among two different shops. Naturally, with most procurement conversations, the conversation turns towards cost savings. Because Everett was sourcing parts from Asia, the people that hired him were often looking for cost savings. But his engineering background taught him that just changing suppliers sometimes doesn't yield very good cost savings. So he had to get creative. And then the supply chain manager's job is to go to, to their management and say, you know, this is the bottom limit based on math of the price of this part. And, you know, so we have choices now, right? So I, I get involved. That's one of the advantages of, of the business I'm in of having a variety of centers of excellence is that sometimes I end up taking a part that was machined from stock and then I offer the customer that I can make an extrusion for less cost than machine that extrusion. Or I can do investment casting of, of more than one part as one and then you have the savings of not machining two separate parts, but you get one part that's investment casted with some machine on it. And this, this is called value engineering. I had someone give me a cube, and the cube had all these holes in it, and all these holes had precision. The, the cube was 3.000 by 3.000 by 3.000, and, and all the tolerances of all the holes had three zeros on them also, or, or three digits. And I, I thought it was like a hydraulic system. You know, I, what, what, what kind of part needs such precision? And when I went over with the buyer, because the buyer was complaining it was costing so much for this part, could I save him money? And then once I investigated what the part was used for, it was used for holding tools. The, all those holes held screwdrivers and little tools and stuff for working on the equipment. And, and you know, once we changed the dimensions to three by three by three, and we, you know, made the tolerances on the holes <clears throat> more reasonable compared to what it's, you know, just holding parts. There's no, there was no real tolerance needed. Uh, it became a very inexpensive part. One of the most fascinating parts of our entire conversation was when Everett was talking about the culture of Asia and the culture of China, specifically when it comes to sunk costs. One thing I marvel about in the culture of Asia, and especially in China, is they have a much stronger sense of sunk costs 
than, than Americans. Uh, and sunk costs are the things that you've invested in already. And economists suggest that you should not consider that when you're considering future value of transactions. So, and, and the Chinese are very good with that. You know, they could have sunk $500,000 into a project and if they don't think they're gonna make money next month, then they just walk away, right? Hmm. They move on to other things. And, and, and I, I have the trouble and most Americans have the trouble is to say, wait, I, I put $500,000 into that. I, I gotta get a return somehow. And so uh, one of the challenges in the scenario of supply chain is when you have a good supplier in Asia, you have to keep them convinced that there is a future. Otherwise, they'll move to something else that they think is the way the future is better because of this, the, because the way they discount some costs. That's super interesting. So if, if I was working with a uh, Asian supplier and, and particularly Chinese, but, um, but an Asian supplier and they decided to walk away, um, I should not necessarily uh, be offended except for the fact that uh, they didn't really see a future in me. <laughs> that, that's pretty much it. <laughs> the, the, or, or you didn't do a good enough job of, of presenting the future or making the future real enough or making it profitable enough. Um, what what advice would you give um, to somebody starting a supply chain company and uh, what would you recommend they do or start or try and find? Well, I, I think the best place to start is um, try to f talk with peers, friends, relationships, look on LinkedIn to find people who would connect with you and talk with you and just try to find out what people need, what 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 problem are they having trouble getting solved, right? And because that's the, that, that's usually only people with some kind of pain will give you a chance. In the supply chain profession, there are a couple of different organizations that are involved with trying to promote certification standards, a, a community of people involved in supply chain who can train and teach one another. So two organizations are, one is Apex, which recently has changed their name, and uh, ISM. And, and I'm in Southern California, I, I try to go to meetings for, for both of them. I find it useful to network and meet other supply chain uh, influencers and, and leaders and people who are just new to, to the profession. So if you're looking to start a supply chain company, start with your network, and reach out to those in professional networks such as Apex and ISM. I promised that I would give a little shout out to Everett's Orange County chapter of ISM. Well, for Orange County, we have a website, ism-oc.org. And um, so and if you Google ISM Orange County, it will come up. Uh, and we have meetings on the third Thursday of each month, and any supply chain professionals welcome to to attend. Um, they don't have to be a member; they can just find the topic interesting and, and sign up. We we are on Eventbrite also, um, 
then on LinkedIn, we have an ISM OC group, and, and there's also ISM groups and supply chain groups on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn's a very useful tool for supply chain professionals to find groups, hashtags related to supply chain, start to post comments on posts. I, I think it's worthwhile to take the time to look at what people are saying and make comments about what people are saying and build a little bit of a voice as a supply chain professional.